0: Okay, that's the auxiliary mic, good to go. Sunday school, time for Sunday school. There's a handout on the back table. All right. This morning the class is going to be just a little bit different because today I want to try to tell a story. And so this, this is probably the least compressible of the five classes I'm going to teach, but I'm hoping to tell this, tell the story of Cyril of Alexandria and the controversy with Nestorius, which resulted in the Sect the, the Council of Ephesus. So the context of the Council of Ephesus is it's a, basically a hundred years after the Council of Nicaea. It's over a hundred years after Constantine. Had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and with just a brief hiatus under Julian, and even under Julian, there there wasn't uh, Christianity wasn't outlawed. He just legalized paganism. But after Julian, the Roman Empire had basically been all in on, on, on Christianity as the official state religion. And after the Arians were dealt with, following basically following the council, of, the first Council of Constantinople it was basically Nicene Christianity was the official policy of the empire. But it's, this is kind of the time period where it starts to get very strange by our standards of the things that were going on in the church. And I originally taught this class in 2010, and at the time, I, my comment was, it is a miracle that the early church survived itself. A couple of years after that, my professor from college, Dr. Krabbenham, was staying with us, and uh, he was preaching in, in, in our church in New Mexico. And he just happened to grab this book. This is, this is, the, this is the main book, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria and the Christological Controversy. So this is this is a big monograph, and this guy, John McGuckin, is a very well-respected Eastern, Eastern Orthodox scholar, and this is the standard um, monograph on, on the controversy. So Dr. Krabadam had ha- happened to just pull this off the shelf, and he was reading this book while he was there, and I made that comment to him, it's a miracle the early church survived itself, and his response was, it didn't. So... There's a lot going on that is, that we would just say is unacceptable and um, not biblical. But at the same time, there are important controversies that continue down to the present day in some communities. So I want to go over that um, and kind of try to tell the story in order to set the context. Cyril of Alexandria is... For, the, for the, Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox, he is the key theologian. He's basically the equivalent of Thomas Aquinas to the Church of Rome. Um, they, they call, they call, uh, the, the, the Church of the East calls Cyril um, the seal of all the fathers. So he, But he was, he was very controversial in his own day. He remains just as controversial down today. And I will try to, as impartially as I can, present uh, what happened. He was extremely powerful politically, um, but I guess I'll get into that. So Cyril's mother and uncle were orphans in the area who arrived in Alexandria as children and were basically adopted by Athanasius. His uncle was Theophilus. And later, Theophilus became Athanasius's secretary and... A few years after Athanasius died, Theophilus succeeded uh, as, as Archbishop of Alexandria, and then Cyril succeeded his uncle um, as Archbishop of Alexandria. So the two of them together were, were basically ruled Alexandria for almost 60 years. So they were, they were extremely powerful and influential. Um, by some of the earlier councils that we looked at, the church had said that only the archbishop could ordain local bishops. So all of the bishops in his region had been ordained by Cyril. And it's the same in Constantinople and Rome and Antioch and all the major sees. All the bishops of the region had to be ordained by that one archbishop at the, at the major metropolitan. Um, so... He grew up in that context. He was extremely savvy politically. He was extremely savvy theologically uh, and in terms of ecclesiastical politics. He was very well educated and he was very strong in in, uh, his knowledge of Greek and uh, pagan philosophy as well. Um, One incident, which is interesting that I'll just try to briefly relate, that this happened before... The uh, Council of Ephesus and before the, the Nestorian controversy, there was um, so paganism had more or less been outlawed in the Roman Empire, and in Alexandria, in the city, basically all the pagan non non Christian temples and worship had been destroyed and stamped out. But there were still holdouts in the outskirts and more rural regions. So about 12 miles away, there was a small town uh, called Manuthis, and there was a pagan shrine to the goddess Isis, where um, they, were, uh, they, had, they had oracles, they had um, a healing center, they had this big statue of the goddess, Uh, ritual, prostitution, and offerings. So Cyril found out about this, and he spent all night in prayer praying about how to fight this demon. And and this was a very popular center of pilgrimage for for pagans to come and get the oracles and and the healing center. So, allegedly, an angel appeared to Cyril at the end of his prayer and told him to bring the more powerful relics of St. Cyrus the Martyr. So St. Cyrus was a martyr from earlier, and he was buried in Alexandria, and the angel told Cyril to take the relics of St. Cyrus to fight the demon at the Shrine of Isis. So they opened the tomb, but instead of one body, they found two. So Cyril orders an investigation because they weren't expecting to find two, and the the, the whoever conducted the investigation came back to him and said that the other one was another martyr who was a soldier named John, but they didn't know which was which. So he took both. And they, um, they, had, they had an elaborate ritual, an embalming of the relics. They put the relics in a gold-encrusted casket, and with a huge profet- procession from the church in Alexandria, they marched this through the desert and set up a competing Christian shrine just outside of Manuthis, where they would offer healing and uh, and and the and the relics of these martyrs, and it was free. So the other one you had to pay, the Christian one you didn't have to pay, and also it was on the way to Menuthis. So anyone who stopped and touched the relics of the Christian shrine would be ritually impure and unable to enter the shrine of Isis. So. Uh, That was how Cyril dealt with that situation. Now, uh, shortly after that, the, the, the controversy with Nestorius started to arise. And the council that resulted from that was the Council of Ephesus in 431. So it's 50 years after the Council of Constantinople. The first Council of Constantinople is the Council of Ephesus. It's also the first council that they extensively documented, and we have all the records. So, as far as we know, no one took... Well, no notes survived from Nicaea or the First Council of Constantinople. We have some eyewitness accounts, but there are no official minutes of the councils. But the Council of Ephesus had official minutes. So, uh, the Trinitarian controversies that had preceded, which is what we've been discussing, had basically set the stage... For the Christological controversies which followed, and I briefly mentioned apollinarianism which was addressed at the at the first Council of Constantinople and the this next major controversy was over the the, the issue of the how does the how does the the word the Son of God relate to the human in Jesus Christ? That is the question of christology, and both parties in this dispute were Prepared to use and prepared and did use the full extent of political and ecclesiastical power to uh, get their way. And the the catalyst, the word that sparked this controversy is the word Theotokos, mother of God or God bearer. So Nestorius uh, was appointed archbishop of Constantinople. Oh, actually, before I do that, I should I need to read I need to read the uh, I need to read the names. The names the names of the people involved in this story. So, Cyril is the archbishop of Alexandria. Theodosius II is the emperor in Constantinople. Augusta Pulcheria is the emperor's older sister. Now, when the emperor when the emperor's father died, and I can't remember his name, he was too young to be emperor, so Pulcheria served as regent empress for quite a few years until Theodosius was old enough to become the emperor. So she was very powerful politically and very savvy politically. She was a, she was a force to be reckoned with, and Nestorius ends up running afoul of her. Um, Proclus was a very popular bishop in the city of Constantinople, and he was a friend of Pulcheria. Nestorius became the archbishop of Constantinople. Pope Celestine is the pope in Rome. John is archbishop of Antioch. That's one of the other major sees in the east, and that's actually the region Nestorius was from. Memnon is the archbishop in Ephesus, where the council is held. Candidian is the captain of the imperial guard. And then Count John is a representative from the imperial court. So those are the names, and you don't have to remember them all, but those are the names that will be coming up. So, the Archbishop of Constantinople dies, and Theodosius surprises everyone by appointing Nestorius as Archbishop of Constantinople. Nestorius was not from the city. He wasn't even a bishop, he was was running a monastery in the east and for reasons that were not clear then and are still not clear now, Theodosius appointed Nestorius as Archbishop of Constantinople. So he's a complete outsider, he's very naive politically and he comes with some of the theological um, traditions of that part of the empire. He immediately starts doing what he thinks is purifying the religion in Constantinople and stamping out heresy by going after Aryan congregations, he attacks the aristocracy, and he attacks the local monks. So he immediately uh, alienates at least two b- very powerful groups. He also almost immediately alienates the Princess Pulcheria, and this is how it happened all of his predecessors in Constantinople would serve the emperor communion first and separately. So in the service, the emperor would come down, the bishop would serve the emperor communion, and prior to Nestorius, they would serve the emperor and his sister at the same time. She would come down with him and receive the sacrament, and then the rest of the congregation would get it. So when she shows up on the first uh, day with Nestorius, he refused to serve her, and then made a comment about her chastity, and there was a sharp dispute right there at the front of the church service, at the front at the front of the the front of the uh, the, the altar. And then he removed an expensive altar covering that Pulcheria had donated, so he's immediately like made an, an enemy of Pulcheria, and that comes back at his expense later. So not long after that, a group of his enemies came to, came to see him, and it's also not clear what prompted this, but I think they were suspicious of his theology based on where he was from in Antioch, and they asked him, what is a legitimate title for the Savior? Is it Theotokos, mother of, or, sorry, for, for Mary? What what is a legitimate title for Mary, the mother of Jesus? Is it Theotokos, mother of God, or Anthropotokos, mother of man? Nestorius, and this was a private audience, he said that neither is legitimate, and what he suggests is Christotokos, mother of Christ. And McGuckin says, his comment is, how he thought this would please anyone, even his own party, is difficult to comprehend. But, the response convinced his critics that his orthodoxy was compromised. And what the popular saying in Constantinople was, because Nestorius was always, he, he, was, he was always talking about, you know, logical contradictions and um, basically using sort of philosophical language to, Defend his position, so he would say something like, "Well, strictly speaking, Mary is not the mother of God." And so, the the saying in Constantinople was, "If Mary is not strictly speaking the mother of God, then her son is not strictly speaking God." So that was the um, the the thing that touched off the controversy. Now, Cyril found out about this very early on because he has agents in the capital monitoring what's going on, and they were reporting to him on what was happening in the capital. So he finds out about it, and basically it becomes a conflict between these two men, and Nestorius was just never a match for Cyril's money and his um, network, you know, his, his ecclesiastical network, and his political savvy. So, in 429, Nestorius began a series of sermons on the nature of true faith in Christ, and the first lecture was by his chaplain, Anastasius, who said in the sermon, it is impossible for God to be born of a woman. And that caused a scandal in the city among the clergy and among the laity. Bishop Proclus, and remember, he's a popular, very popular bishop locally. He responds with his own sermon in Nestorius's church with Nestorius sitting there, and he gave a sermon on the Virgin Mother of God, which he received loud applause for. Now, that's another thing. In, the, in these services, they're haranguing each other and, you know, insulting the bishop or, you know, ch- challenging him or cheering. You know, it's it's a very wild. It's not it's not how, how we do things here. Um, and it, I wanted to read this quote. So, in the spring of that same year, so that's four twenty nine, matters reached a serious pitch at Constantinople when the lawyer Eusebius arranged for a public placard to be carried around the city, openly accusing the archbishop of the heresy of the Samasatine, which I don't even know what that is. Um, The monastic leaders caused demonstrations in the cathedral to disrupt his preaching. So they're demonstrating in the cathedral where he's preaching. On one such occasion, the master of offices came down with instructions from the archbishop to lay hands on one monk who was haranguing him from the body of the church. The official was going to flog the insubordinate and exile him from the capital. But a crowd of supporters overwhelmed him and carried the ascetic off in triumph, shoulder high, to the protection of the Monastery of St. Euphemia, which had barred its doors to Nestorius. There, with complete impunity, he carried on his campaign of insulting his archbishop. So, the agents in Constantinople had sent copies of Nestorius' sermons to Cyril in Alexandria and to Pope Celestine at Rome, and Cyril starts to study and to write. And another big advantage Cyril had was he could output massive quantities of written material, and did, and probably had secretaries to help him do that. Um, at about the same time, Nestorius, two, two, two deposed bishops come from Rome. They had been condemned as Pelagians by the church at Rome, and they show up in Constantinople. And Nestorius decides to review their complaint. So they, they complain against the Bishop of Rome to Nestorius, and he accepts, their, uh, he, he, he accepts their challenge and decides to review their complaint. So what he's doing here is basically claiming ecclesiastical precedence of Constantinople over Rome. And that was another thing I mentioned before that was going on at the time is, you know, which... You know, which church you know which see uh, is the most powerful and has precedence over all the others? So Nestorius is sending a clear signal that Constantinople is the final court of appeal, of appeal for discipline and for doctrine, and he sent two letters to Pope Celestine, who just ignored both of them. Um, in February of four thirty a guest was preaching in Nestorius' church who was a friend of Nestorius and he said from Nestorius's pulpit, anyone who calls Mary mother of God is anathema. So he's saying that is a heresy. Um, so I want to take the time in your handout to read a few of the quotes here so we can get an idea of what the, the issue was. Um, The first quote at the top is from a letter that Cyril sent to Eusebius. He says, It is the same in the case of Nestorius, even if he does speak of two natures to signify the difference between the flesh and God the Word. For the nature of the Word is one thing, and that of the flesh is quite another. But Nestorius does not confess the union along with us. We unite these realities and confess that the self-same is one Christ, one Son, And one Lord. And we confess, moreover, that there is one incarnate nature of the Son, just as one might say in regard to an ordinary man who results from different natures, that is, body and soul. And then one of the letters he wrote, he wrote 12 anathemas in a letter to Nestorius later on, and I wrote those here, so I'll read a couple of them. Number one If anyone does not confess the Emmanuel to be truly God, and hence the Holy Virgin to be Mother of God, for she gave birth in the flesh to the Word of God made flesh, let him be anathema. Number two, if anyone does not confess that the Word of God the Father was hypostatically united to the flesh so as to be one Christ with his own flesh, that is the same one at once, God and man, let him be anathema. Number four, If anyone interprets the sayings in the Gospels and apostolic writings, or the things said about Christ by the saints, or the things he says about himself, to two prosopa, or hypostases, we can think of that as person, or reality. So if anyone talks about things in the Gospels, referring to two persons or two realities, attributing some of them to a man, conceived of as, a, as separate from the word of God, and attributing others as divine exclusively to the word of God, the Father, let him be anathema. Number five, if anyone should dare to say that Christ was a God-bearing man, and not rather that he is truly God, as the one natural son, since the word became flesh, John one fourteen, and shared in flesh and blood just like us, Hebrews 2.14, let him be anathema. Number seven, if anyone says that Jesus as a man was activated by the word of God and invested with the glory of the only begotten as being someone different to him, let him be anathema. And then the last one, if anyone does not confess, number 12, if anyone does not confess that the word of God suffered in the flesh, was crucified in the flesh, and tasted death in the flesh, becoming the firstborn from the dead, although as God, he is life and life-giving, let him be anathema. So in these 12 anathemas, Cyril is trying to capture the truth of the union of God the Word with the flesh that's revealed in Scripture in a way that Nestorius can't affirm and won't affirm. So I put a few quotes. These are from Nestorius. These were quoted at the council in his deposition. Um, he allegedly said, I venerate the one who is born on account of the one who bears him. I worship the one who is visible on account of the one who lies hidden. Or he says, For this reason the word of God is also called Christ, insofar as he has a continuous association with the Christ. Nonetheless, I worship him, Jesus, along with the deity, insofar as he is co-operator with the divine majesty. It is not the Godhead which has James for a brother, and it is not the death of God the Word which we proclaim when we are nourished by the Lord's body and blood. So what Nestorius was accused of is basically separating the Word from the man Jesus. It's almost as if there was a man Jesus and God the Word came and occupied or... um, indwelt him or something like that but in such a way that he would not say that he he just wouldn't attribute any of these earthly things that happen to humans he just refused to attribute that to God. So he would not say that God was born of a woman he would not say that God suffered and died on a cross or that he was hungry or or anything like that. And that's where he uh, ran afoul. So About a year later, Nestorius persuaded the emperor, Theodosius, to call an international council. He persuaded him to call an an ecumenical council for the entire church. And what Nestorius intended to do was to put Cyril on trial. And um, they had been writing letters back and forth to each other. And it's, it's interesting to read their letters... Um, I don't know, have any of you read, have any of you read Luther much? I don't know, if you're familiar with Luther, and like, guys at that time, late Middle Ages, or, you know, beginning of the modern period, when they would attack each other in writing polemically, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something we're not used to. Well, I will tell you, Luther was an amateur compared to these guys in the 5th century, um, the, there's a, several of the letters in the back of this book, and the, the, the well, first of all, they start out with these unbelievably flowery introductions to each other, and then just launch right into the most... So it, it'll be like, um, to, to Cyril, the most God-beloved brother and most honored minister of the gospel at Alexandria, your blasphemies will light the fires of hell for all eternity. And that's kind of the tone of of how they address each other, but they've been sending letters back and forth, and Nestorius persuades Theodosius to call a council, which he intended to be a trial of Cyril, and he assumed, and that was a big mistake on his part, he assumed that the council would be held in Constantinople so that he would have home court advantage, so to speak. About the same time, Rome independently of all this anathematized Nestorius's teachings so they declared him heretical and they demanded that he recant and they made Cyril the executor of their decree so Cyril is supposed to present the decree of Rome to Nestorius saying that he's been anathematized and he has to recant his false teachings so at the end of that same year Cyril wrote his third letter to Nestorius, which is the letter that contains these twelve anathemas, which were very controversial. They're very controversial when he wrote them. They some of them remain controversial to this day. But it was the strongest statement of Cyril's position, and it didn't leave any wiggle room for Nestorius to uh, to say, you know, to, to evade the, the meaning of what Cyril was saying. So. Cyril, not knowing that Theodosius had called a council, sent four of his own bishops to Constantinople to deliver this decree to Nestorius, which they did in person during the service. In the middle of the service where Nestorius was preaching, they showed up with this paper from Rome to depose him. And, uh, and not only that, but the imperial court was present as well at, at, this, at this service. So now it was really going to, to happen, it was really going to be joined at, at the council, and we don't know who orchestrated this, but probably Pulcheria had the idea to have the council held in Ephesus. Now, the reason that's interesting is that both in the, in the formal theology and popularly on the streets, the issue was, is Mary the mother of God? And there's already a huge cult of Mary by this time in the early church where there are prayers to Mary and, and uh, rites like that. Well, if you remember from the book of Acts, what, was, what, what did Paul find at Ephesus? He found the ancient city that was devoted to the worship of Artemis. Well, after it had been Christianized, they just switched out all the signs, and now it's the center of devotion to Mary. So it went from being uh, the center of worship for Artemis, the mother god, to Mary, the mother of God. So now the synod or the the council was going to be held in Ephesus. So that was that was very bad for Nestorius because now he's basically, uh, you know, his opponents view it as he's attacking the Virgin Mary, and now he's going to the city of Ephesus where it's kind of like, you know, her people. Um, To have this council. So the emperor issued the decree on November 19th, 430. So the end of November in the year 430 and the council was supposed to start on June 7th. So about seven months later. Now remember, it's an international council. So everyone is supposed to come from all corners of the empire and uh, it's, it, ends, it ends up being very short notice, especially for John of Antioch, who's in the east, and was presumably well, presumably, and was actually somewhat sympathetic to Nestorius. He has to get the decree from Constantinople, then he has to, then he has to summon all his bishops from his huge diocese, and then they have to make the trip to Ephesus, which under ideal circumstances would have taken 30 days. So, Their delegation got a late start. They had lots of detours on the way, delays. Some of the older bishops were getting sick and dying while John's traveling with his bishops from Antioch to the council at Ephesus. And he was bringing 43 bishops with him. Nestorius brought 17 bishops, and he arrived with the imperial uh, representative Candidian and the palace guard. So Nestorius shows up with a handful of bishops, but he's also got the imperial palace guard. Cyril brought fifty bishops, and Memnon, who was the local bishop of Ephesus and was on Cyril's side because this is the you know this is kind of Mary's city, uh, Memnon summoned a large number of his local bishops, and the West sent very few delegates. So only three guys came from Rome and they were late and only one from Carthage where Augustine had been previously. So basically, Cyril had about 120 bishops he could count on and there were about 60 or 70 total who were undecided. So everybody shows up. Oh, and Cyril had a large party of armed monks who were basically his private militia um, that, that that were with him. So this huge group arrives at Ephesus which is not set up for huge groups, and they're waiting there, waiting for John of Antioch to show up with his party. They don't know where he is, and they start to... It's, it was very, very hot, and the accommodations and the food supply start to be strained, and tensions are high because these people are at each other's throat, and the locals are friends. You know, they're, on, they're fully on the side of, of Cyril and Memnon um, against Nestorius, uh, oh, Memnon also, he, he refused to communicate with Nestorius and refused to allow him entry to his church. And so they were start, the, the locals were also starting to be openly hostile toward Nestorius' party. But, on the other hand, Nestorius continued to act very arrogantly, and he scandalized and alienated some of his own friends and some neutrals. So I wanted to read a quote on page 64 here about some of the neutrals they were trying to, you know, uh, moderate this dispute. It appeared that on the 18th of June, so this is 11 days after the council was supposed to start, Nestorius lost patience with Theodotus in explaining his position. He was, Theodotus was a, was a nominally neutral bishop who was just trying to understand the issues. Um, on the basic rules of theological discourses, he understood them. On why the title of God ought to be reserved for the acts proper to the logos why the title of Jesus ought to be reserved to the acts proper of the human being, such as Jesus eating, drinking, and so forth, and why the titles Christ, Lord, or Son ought to be reserved to signify the sphere of concerted action. To what appears to have been Theodotus' appeal for a simpler answer as to what was wrong with a straightforward confession of Jesus as God, Nestorius replied impatiently, we must not call the one who became man for us God. He decided to press his point home (coughs) that language about the incarnate Lord had to observe strict rules if it was to avoid foolish incongruities, and compounded his difficulties by telling the shocked Theodotus, I refuse to acknowledge as God an infant of two or three months old. So he was, in the meantime, alienating people who were... he He was scandalizing and alienating people who were trying to figure out what was going on and understand it. Um... So, Oh, Candidian calls in military reinforcements because tensions are running so high and after about two weeks a messenger came from John to Cyril saying, I'm running late I'll be there in two days if I'm late, start without me which is a little bit ambiguous you could interpret it as if I'm late in two days, start without me, or if I'm late at all, start without me. Well, Cyril decided to interpret it the second way, and he summons the council. He convenes the council on June 22nd. Um, The the problem he had was that it had to be formally started by reading the the imperial decree. So Candidian had to read the imperial decree in order for the council to officially start. So Cyril summoned the bishops, they all showed up, um, Nestorius summoned, he, ref- he was summoned, he refused to come. He and his allies objected to the synod, but their objection was not entertained, but they needed Candidian to read the decree and Cyril had no way to legally open the synod until his opponent solved his problem for him. So they were there for one day. On the second day, with all the bishops assembled in the church again, Candidian shows up with Nestorius and with the palace guard and orders them to disperse because they're holding an illegal meeting in the church. And this created a massive uproar because none of the bishops wanted to be ordered around in the church by the imperial guard. So it's chaos. Somehow in the uproar, a majority of the bishops managed to ask Candidian but by what right he declared their assembly illegal and he said that he hadn't read the imperial decree yet. And they responded, we don't believe you have it. So he took it out and read it. And thereby convened the Council of Ephesus. So after that, things went right along. They, they, they uh, they summoned Nestorius three times. He ignored their summons. That was what they were required to do. Then they read the letters between Cyril and Nestorius. They heard testimony from witnesses, and the council anathematized and deposed Nestorius from his position, which was an irrevocable decision. Um, during, the, during that first session, 40 of Nestorius's 68 supporters switched sides. and and his deposition was signed by 197 bishops. There were fewer than 30 at the council who continued to support Nestorius. However, Candidian had promised that he would annul any of the proceedings that happened without John, and he refused to let, and he closed the city, said no one's coming or going until we sort this out. three days later, oh, plus, all of them are sending messages to the emperor. Cyril's sending letters to the emperor, Nestorius is sending letters to the emperor, Candidian's sending letters to the emperor. So the emperor's getting all these conflicting reports arriving at the capital, and uh, four days later, John shows up after this long journey from Antioch to find out that everything's over. So he was not amused, and within hours he called his own synod and he deposed Cyril and Memnon and excommunicated all the bishops in the majority council until they would repent. So, but that that was all illegal. He didn't summon any of them and he did not hear any of Cyril's evidence. So, uh, Memnon still controlled the churches and the people were opposed to Nestorius. So, uh, John had told them that John had told Candidian, the imperial representative, that they were not allowed to perform services because he had deposed Memnon. Memnon told Candidian that he had no jurisdiction in the ecclesiastical affairs, and he invited Cyril to preach in his church. So, he, the emperor is getting all these conflicting reports, and in an incomprehensible move. He ratified both councils and confirmed all the depositions. So finally, after many attempts to meet with John, the majority council got together again and they excommunicated John and 34 of his bishops. About a week later, a new imperial representative, Theodosius, sends somebody else to sort out this mess, and that guy shows up with letters to Celestine of Rome, uh, Rufinus of Thessalonica, and Augustine of Hippo, who were believed to be the leading clergy present. However, none of them was present. Uh, Celestine had never left Rome, Rufinus of Thessalonica had not come, and Augustine had been dead for a year. So, it's just complete chaos. When John arrives, he called a session of all the bishops. So, Cyril stands up and demands that Nestorius should be excluded. John stands up and demanded that Cyril should be excluded, and then there's a big commotion. And Count John then announced the emperor's decision, and Nestorius and Cyril and, and Memnon were all arrested and placed under house arrest, and their church's assets were frozen. Until the Emperor could get to the to the bottom of this, so that was basically what happened at the council. Um, they condemned Nestorius 's teaching the twelve anathemas of Cyril were not included in the official uh, statements of the council, but they were included as notes as part of the evidence. so from that point on, it was just politics. Cyril was sending massive gifts of cash and jewelry and all kinds of things to influential people in the capital and emperor's family members and uh, lobbying he, he nearly bankrupted his church which was very wealthy over the ensuing months um, by sending them blessings and, and you know to all these aristocrats um, so in the end oh and, and he also escaped to Alexandria even though he's under house arrest so when Theodosius finds out that Cyril had actually escaped, he kind of just let that go and decided not to press the issue because now Cyril's back in his own place where he's extremely powerful. Um, so the results, when all the smoke cleared, Nestorius's deposition was upheld and he was banished and he went into the desert where he continued to write. Um, Cyril and Memnon were both cleared and allowed to resume as bishops in their own churches. And Cyril returned to Alexandria as a hero. And that's basically how the story ends until 1897, when they found a book written by Nestorius in the Assyrian desert. And um, actually, this is the first heresy which... Continuously is upheld. The, the Assyrian Christians are Nestorian, and they hold Nestorius as a saint down to this day. So Arius kind of went away. Um, you know, and the Jehovah Witnesses believe the same things basically, but they're not exactly Arian. They're not directly descended from him. But Nestorius, to this day, has direct descendants. Um, so that was the Council of Ephesus, and. Make of it what you will. Um, It it was an important milestone in the Christological debates of the church defining precisely the relationship between the word taking on flesh and how the, the divine nature relates to the human nature. Oh, one final comment. Cyril and John continued to correspond after these events and they did manage to come to an agreement. Cyril at first was very reluctant to say two natures. He didn't want to say that. But in the end, and John didn't want to say mother of God, but in the end, they had they reached an understanding where Cyril agreed to say two natures and one hypostasis, and John agreed to say mother of God. And so they kind of patched things up for the time being. Um, so it, it wasn't just that Cyril... You know, couldn't be reasoned with or listened to anyone else. He, they did work very hard to try to come to an agreement between the theologians in the East, with, with their emphasis on the, you know, the the true manhood of Christ, and in the West, with their emphasis more specifically on the divinity of Christ. So that is the Council of Ephesus. Any questions? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think he meant that, it may, I, I think he meant that it was it was no longer a true church. That's what I think he meant. And I'm not endorsing that necessarily, um, but there was a lot of wild stuff going on. You know, um, one thing I didn't mention, there was a very famous philosopher in Alexandria named Hypatia. She has a huge Wikipedia article. She's a she was uh, she was a very good mathematician, very popular teacher. Most of her students were Christians, although she was not a Christian. She was a Neoplatonist. and she was torn to pieces by a mob in the streets of of, of Christians. Um, and there was there was stuff going on like that all the time. Plus all the stuff with Mary. It's just, I mean, the best I could say is that it's a miracle that the church survived itself. Um, so. Yeah, that's, I think that's what he meant. Yeah, Bob. Uh, I've got a few questions. Um, so is it, we're ever saying the stories of the in two natures, two persons, right? The, or, the, the, the Orthodox doctrine? Or did, did the stories of the in two natures, two persons? It appears that he was, that he was saying two persons, It looks like... the Part of the problem is that most of what we knew about Nestorius was written by his enemies. So we do have a couple of his letters. He refused to say Mother of God, um, but a lot of what we have is written by his enemies. So basically, what the Council of Ephesus condemned was, teach, was Nestorius's teaching as explained by Cyril. As explained by Cyril, and it does seem to be somewhat consistent with his refusal to say Mother of God, that... Mary had a baby human, fully human, and then the word, the second person of the trinity came and was somehow joined to that human. And similarly on the cross, but then Nestorius gets into man worship because if you're not going to attribute incarnation and you know, an atonement to you know, or suffering and death to to God the word, uh, are you going to worship this man Jesus without the Word? Or it, so that was one of the things that was a problem, was problematic. Do we have a document from Nestorius? Like the yeah, they did. They they issued um, they issued anathemas. I don't. I didn't. I didn't write those down. But yeah, they, they issued a decree. And that was, that was um, that council continued to be recognized afterwards by, by, for instance, Chalcedon. By the way, the Council of Chalcedon kind of, I mean, that was probably the pinnacle of, you know, sound Christological doctrine in the early church. And Nestorius supposedly from the desert said, yeah, I agree with that. So it's not... It's not entirely clear. He also is very confusing. I mean, you could read his letters. It's not easy to understand what he's saying. It's, my impression is that he's trying to be evasive um, and accusing his opponents, like accusing Cyril, of things that, that Cyril didn't believe and no one would have thought he believed. So stuff like that um, is definitely messy. Did I say for four, um, 444 yeah Cyril, Cyril did Cyril died in 444 Nestorius lived on for a while a while longer yeah. he claimed that that's what he believed in the end, yeah so I, I mean. I'm not going to comment on, you know, who was had true saving faith or not, it, but but you know it was that teaching that was problematic and what the council condemned. Yeah, Allison. Yeah, I think I think uh, there were Nestorian Christians, you know. Yeah, into China and in Assyria to this day. Yeah, they... Assyria. Yeah, Assyrian Christians are Nestorian, largely. I think it's Iraq, yeah. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, in 1897, they found a book that Nestorius had written on Christology, <laughs> that he had written in the desert, so that, and actually, to be honest, if I learned that after I read this book, and McGuckin never mentions that, which I think, for me, I found that a little, that I was not pleased when I learned that, because it seems like kind of a major oversight. Um, he basically presented the whole story. I mean, he's a good scholar. He's trying to be objective, and he's not uncritical of Cyril, but he's basically presenting it as, you know, the way Cyril... The way Cyril presented it, so I don't really know the details of what was in the book, but it was a pretty major discovery, you know. After this has been a famous incident for fifteen hundred years, exactly. A... Probably, and I do think I think I think John of Antioch years later did persuade him to agree to use the title Theotokos, so yeah, yeah how, how it ended with him, I don't know yeah, Zach oh, I'm sorry yeah Why would they call us Nestorian? I'm not sure. I do know. I, I haven't finished my studies of Chalcedon. I do know that Chalcedon, Chalcedon is formally accepted by the Church of the East, but they were not completely happy with it. And so I don't, I don't actually know the details about that. There are monophysite Christians still in Egypt, which is one nature. And those would, have pe- those would have been like radicalized followers of Cyril who refused to say two natures. They say one nature, and that was dealt with at Chalcedon as well. No, I think that I think that the Christian church has always recognized that the baby in the manger was is God come in the flesh and that's I mean the the way the the way the church the Church of Rome and, and the East venerates Mary, um, I, I think that's the origin of it. No, I no, I think I think Jesus being God is its own issue. You know. It's a separate issue, but, but was it was it did they start going down this, let's say, um, argument because they wanted to prove that Mary was was to be venerated, or was it the result of this that then they say, therefore, we must venerate Mary? I think it was a re- I think it was the result. Yeah, I I definitely think so. Although I do think a lot of the veneration of Mary is, I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but probably has a very pedestrian explanation is just paganism um, coming into the church. The the reason I was wondering that is that, I mean, maybe someone could call us historic just because we don't venerate Mary. That could be. Yeah, that's possible. Right. We don't pray to Mary. We don't. Um, in fact, we don't actually hear the mother of God. That's not something we typically say. Um, yeah, Bob. Is it Is it of God? Uh, you should ask Pastor Booth that question. <laughs> but, well, I mean... I'm not entirely comfortable with saying mother of god without qualification because she is the mother of god come in the flesh. So I mean I'm perfectly happy saying that. You know the infant in the manger is god come in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, god with us. That's what we have to that's what we have to affirm. Yeah, it, it Yeah. Like conceived of the Holy Spirit is yes. that, that's that's going to change the nature of the motherhood anyway that whole that yeah. a qualification right Yeah, Bob. So do the Catholics say Mary is one of Yes. Definitely. And so does the East. Yeah. All right, wow, that went longer than I thought, but thank you for your patience. Peter, would you be willing to close us in prayer? We need a book like this by a reformed author for every one of the ecumenical councils, at least.